0: Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. God, thank you for this morning. And as we get to wrestle with the hope we have in Christ and see how that compares to other world religions this morning, um, religions and faiths that we are encountering um, throughout the week with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, and just throughout Johnson City, we ask that you help us to get a, a better understanding of where they're coming from, but that you would give us a greater hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, that you'd give us a spirit of, of gentleness and kindness and give us the courage to engage with people who are, who are falling or following something that's leading them away from you, and that we could bring them closer to what it means to have saving faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So be with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, my senior year of high school, um, every day I, I parked my truck in the same parking spot, and this girl Courtney parked right next to me, and and so we were polar opposites on the high school scale. She was the pretty, blonde, popular girl, and I was just like the nice guy that was different than all of her other friends. But for some reason, we talked every morning, and then we would walk with each other to our first class. And, and we did that on a like a daily basis. Well, one day, as we're walking, I can tell that she's a little bit uncomfortable, and, and she's got something that she wants to say, but she's not quite sure how to say it. And so as we're walking from the parking lot to class, she goes, Jeff. Are you uh, are you a Mormon? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And so at this point you see this look of of relief and this look of confusion simultaneously come over her face. She, she's relieved because she finally got the question out that was bothering her, but she was confused because in her mind, those two things were the same, Mormons and Christians, like, isn't that the same thing? Isn't that just another denomination? And so she was a little bit confused. And so chances are, um, you might have heard that before. And so from people on the outside of the Christian church looking in, a lot of people think that religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are just another denomination. And then sometimes even from those on the inside, there's some confusion there. All right, and so maybe you've encountered people riding around town with their white shirts tucked in on their bikes. and Or maybe you've been downtown recently, the farmer's market on Saturday, and you'll see those little portable booths where it says, what does the Bible really teach and, and you see the org and maybe you're the type of person that thinks like don't answer the door or don't make eye contact because you're like, I, I think we're different. I think that we're right and they're wrong, but I'm really not sure how to explain that. So it's probably better that I just don't even enter this conversation. Well, today I want to talk specifically about those two religions. Um, how, how they got started, what do they believe in, and how does their message differ from Our message. And my hope in that is that you guys will get to understand that our our faith is completely different. And so today, I'll just show my cards, is gonna be a little different than normal. Normally, we go through huge chunks of scripture, whole books of the Bible, and you were just kind of hunkering in and going verse by verse. Today's gonna be different. So if that's what you're used to, I'm gonna be all over the place. And so you might just wanna take down references of scriptures and go back and highlight them and underline them on your own. Or if you're just really good, maybe you were in Awana as a kid and you're like, I got this, like follow along with me. And, and, and so, but I'll be across the board. But my hope is, we can look at these religions, how they got started, what do they believe, and then see how they differ from the hope we have in Christ. Let's just start off with, with Mormonism. All right. Mormonism. This is the one that's most often mistaken for Christianity because they will say things like, Well, we believe in the Bible. We believe in God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We like we're good people, so so we're just another denomination. Why don't you guys accept me as another denomination? So they want to be seen. Um, from society as Christians. And so they're making that claim and that causes some confusion. Well, there are over 16, one six million Mormons in the world right now. That means there are more Mormons than there are Jews. There are about 50,000 missionaries on the field throughout the world spreading their message. And with those 50,000 missionaries, they are getting about 300,000 converts every year. So how did this thing get started? Well, in 1817, Joseph Smith and his family, they moved to upstate New York. And they moved to New York and the family joins the local Presbyterian church and he's just not quite sure if that's the right church to be a part of. And so he's wrestling with this question, you know, what denomination is right? Is it Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or Episcopal or something else? Like, what do I join? What's the right church? I mean, and chances are you might have thought that too at some point. Like, what church is the right one? What denomination is the closest? And and so he's wrestling with this question. Well, in 1820, he goes out into the woods and he's just praying to God, saying, God, show me which one Is right. And so he allegedly has a vision where there are two beings that show up. He thinks one is God and one is Jesus, and they tell him no denomination is right. In fact, it's going to be up to you to reestablish the true church. All right? So that happens in 1820. He's about 14 years old at this point. Well, in 1823, he has his second vision, and this is where he, he has a vision of the angel Moroni and Moroni shows up to him in this same wood area and tells him, hey, there are some golden tablets that have been hidden. There are some seer stones, and you need to go find those. And he, in this vision, he knows where they're at. You need to go find those. They're going to be written in this ancient Egyptian language, but the seer stones are going to help you to interpret them, and you are going to interpret the Book of Mormon. And so he goes, he finds these golden tablets, he gets his seer stones, and he begins the translation process. Well, in eighteen. 30 he has the first Book of Mormon. He starts his church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he gains some followers, right? He, he says he has another vision where he's supposed to move out west, and so they, they end up in Ohio, get a bunch of persecution, um, end up in Illinois, and then when they're in Illinois, this newspaper starts to publish anti-Mormon articles, well, he, he makes up this little army, and he's, he's the head of it, and he tells his people, hey, we need to go and destroy the newspaper company, and we need to burn every copy of the press. This gets him thrown into jail, and then in jail in 1844, a mob rises up, and kills him and his brother, right? So his brother is the would-be successor, and so then comes Brigham Young. And so if Joseph Smith was the visionary, Brigham Young is like the entrepreneur, and so he leads them outside of what is, at that time, the United States. He leads them out to Salt Lake City, Utah, where they established the church, and that becomes the headquarters. And then Brigham Young dies in 1877, and this thing is still going strong today. All right, so that's kind of the history of Mormonism. Now, what do they believe? Well, they believe that in 600 B.C., there were a group of Israelites that built a boat and sailed across the ocean blue and settled in the Americas. This is obviously well before Christopher Columbus, right? So these Israelites come over and they settle in the Americas. Now they are known as the Nephites. And so the Nephites are this righteous white race, but then there are this enemy race called the, the Lamanites. And the Lamanites are a dark warlike, evil people. And so they're always battling back and forth. The Nephites are the Israelites that came over and settled the Americas. The Lamanites are probably what we would call um, Native Americans, right? So after Jesus dies in Jerusalem, right, like when he dies, they believe that the resurrected Jesus made an appearance to the Americas, to the Nephites, and told them that they need to record their history on golden tablets, Right? And so they begin to record their history on these golden tablets. And then in 421, right? The Nephites are going to be wiped out by the Lamanites. But the last surviving person of this race is a guy named Moroni. And so his last effort of his life is to take these golden tablets, to bury them, and to preserve them. His dad was a guy named Mormon, who's one of the authors of these tablets, hence the book of Mormon. And then he dies, and this race is wiped off. Moroni is recreated as an angel, and that's the person who appears to Joseph Smith, telling him where to find the tablets. All right, now, in 1823, Joseph Smith finds the tablets, begins the translation process, then we have the Book of Mormon. All right, so that's kind of what they believe as far as how this thing got to America. Now, they have four sources of authority. So if you're like, what, what kind of guides your guys' life? What is authoritative for you? They have four things. The first is the Bible. So that's what I said. They, they would say, hey, we believe in the Bible too. The only thing is, is they would say, we can't trust the Bible, like, so we, we believe it's authoritative, but we can't trust it because they don't believe it has been accurately translated throughout the last 2,000 years. So they would say this thing's been corrupted, and so therefore it has mistakes. So we can't fully trust it. We need some other stuff. So next to the Bible, they have the Book of Mormon, right? And that's what we talk about. That, that details their history of the Israelites coming over back in the 600s and then establishing the nation of the Nephites, right? And then um, they would say the Book of Mormon is the most accurate and trustworthy document they have right? Now, after that, they have the Doctrine of Covenants, which is 138 um, distinct doctrines of their belief. And then they also have what's known as the Pearl of Great Price. So the Pearl of Great Price kind of has the first part of Genesis reworked a little bit. It has Joseph Smith's autobiography written in there. But one of the most problematic things in the Pearl of Great Price is what's known as the Book of Abraham. Right, and so in the Pearl of Great Price, they have the Book of Abraham, and this is where things get a little bit sketchy. Um, Joseph Smith purchased some papyrus that was written in ancient Egyptian. All right, and so he purchases it, and then he looks at it, and at this point in America, no one can translate Egyptian. Like, no one knows, like, like the jewel drawing stuff, and so he, he makes up his own key and starts to say, well, this symbol means this word, this symbol means that word. And he makes up his key, he translates the book of Abraham, and then they, they lose Right? And so the, the Book of Mormon, all those golden tablets are gone as well, but they lose the papyrus, and so no one can check his work. Little does he know that across the pond, you have the Rosetta Stone. And so the Rosetta Stone, people are actually figuring out how to translate Egyptian stuff. And so when that technology comes to America, they can't test what he's written because the papyrus is gone. Well, then in 1967, they actually find the papyrus, and they take it, compare it to the Rosetta Stone, and it turns out he didn't get anything right. And so it's like, well what do you do with that? All right. And so so that's kind of a black eye to to the pearl of great price. All right. But within their doctrine, they have some stances on God, Jesus, humanity, salvation. As far as God goes, they believe that God was once a man living on another earth. So someone else created God. He was once a man, and then he ascended to Godhood, all right? And so there's another God. That's conflicting with verses like Isaiah 44:6, 6, where God says there is no other God before him. There is no other God, all right? They believe that Jesus, um, along with us, that we were all at one time preexistent spirit beings, And that we then came to earth to take on our humanity to be tested. But we are at one-time spirit beings. They believe that Jesus was God's first spirit being. So he was just the first of God's spirit beings like us. And they don't believe he's unique. So anything Jesus has done or could do, they believe that we have the potential to as long as we are influenced by what they would call a spark of deity. So humanity, they would admit that we have sinned and that we are in need of salvation. But how are we saved? They would say that we are saved by grace after we have done all that we can do. And so if you look at, they have 13 articles of faith. If you look at articles three and four, you see that for them, their salvation is ultimately by what they can do. So when they say we're saved by grace, if you were to say like, Jeff, what does grace mean? I would define that as God's unmerited favor right? So what is God's grace? It's God's unmerited favor towards us, right? So it means that we get things we don't deserve. What's God's mercy? It's God holding back things that we deserve, right? The punishment that we deserve. For them, that's not what grace is. God's grace is something that enables the atonement of Christ. And so for them, grace saves humanity like As a whole. So for them, like grace is something that Jesus' atonement saves all of humanity. So that means every person in here would be saved by this general grace. So they believe in two types of salvation general salvation and individual salvation. So grace is what's needed for general salvation. God's grace saves all of us, but then our works or our obedience to their ordinances is what's responsible for our individual salvation. Right? And so you might be thinking like, what does that have to do with anything? All right? Well, their, their individual salvation will land them, they believe, in three different types of kingdoms. All right? So for them, the afterlife has three different levels that you can obtain. And all that has to do with your obedience or your works to their ordinances for your individual salvation. So there's nothing about grace that gets you into the afterlife for these three kingdoms. The first and highest is what they call the celestial kingdom. Right, The celestial kingdom, that's the highest one. And so if you're going to get in there, you have to be in continual repentance. You have to follow ordinances like being baptized in the temple, have faith. Um, you have to be confirmed. And so you have to follow these ordinances. Then on top of that, you have to live faithfully to all of their commandments. And so if you do that, you can obtain celestial kingdom status. Now, below that, they have their terrestrial kingdom. And the terrestrial kingdom is like the second level. And so that's for people that were good people. These are good people that just didn't have a chance to hear about the Mormon faith with their time on earth. So if you're like a Hindu Indian and you did a ton of good stuff, but no Mormon missionary ever showed up and told you about um, their Jesus, then you would enter this second kingdom. Right. So it's like I was a good person. I just didn't have a chance to put my faith in him. And then the third level down is called the telestial kingdom. And so this is for people who were given a chance to respond to the Mormon faith, but they refused it, right? And so, like for me, like this is where they think I would land if I'm like, "You guys are wrong. Like we're well, going to be in the celestial kingdom," right? And so for that, that's the type of person. <laughs> That's the type of person who, who would ultimately have to pay for their sins in a spirit prison. So they would go to a spirit prison, and once they had paid for all the wrong things they had doed, they would ascend to the celestial kingdom where they would spend the rest of their eternity. Now, Jesus and God would never be there, but it's a, it's a good place. And so at the end of the day, grace saves all of us into one of those three places, but our individual works, they would believe, would determine what level you would make it to. All right, so that's kind of a quick rundown of the, the Mormon faith and what they believe. But I really quickly, and I do mean quickly, I want to answer the question, is this just another denomination? All right? because you're going to hear that, and you might even be here today thinking that. But let me, let me just define real quick denomination. Okay, this will be helpful. A denomination is a subset of a larger religion in which they hold to core beliefs while differing on secondary issues right and so the difference between like the baptist and the methodist is that they believe the same core beliefs but they differ on secondary issues so those are two denominations now if something or if a denomination quotation marks denies a defining belief of the larger religion or advances doctrine of its own that is inconsistent with the central teaching of the parent religion, then it becomes a separate, distinct religious group, okay? And so if they are denying things like the full deity of Christ and his, his eternal existence and his coexistence as being fully God with God the Father and God the Son, they're denying a core belief. If they are advancing this idea of different levels of salvation that can be obtained by your works, like this celestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdom that are not core beliefs of Christianity, if they're denying eternal punishment for our sins, right, then they are denying things that are central. All of a sudden, if they push those doctrines and deny those doctrines, what happens is they're not just another denomination. They are a separate, distinct Religious groups. So, just by the definition of of what a denomination is, we can't look at Mormons and say they're just another Christian denomination. They're not. They would actually fall into what we would call a cult. Okay? And so, this is a dangerous thing. It's not something that we can just tiptoe and be fine with people living in. We've got to turn them and see there's a greater hope and a true hope that they're not seeing. All right, next up Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm seeing these people around town more and more. and so like I said, like, if you go to the farmer's market, they're, they're downtown. If you, if you go out downtown on a Friday night, you're seeing them. They have these little portable things. You can stop at the rest area over the hill on your way to Asheville, and they're posted up at the rest area. Just what does the Bible really teach? And they have this literature that they want to pass out. They're actually supposed to work 15 hours a month passing out their literature. So if you're like, why are they out there? They've got to get those 15 hours in, all right? So, so Jehovah's Witnesses, what, like, what's their history, all right? Well, back in the early 1800s, there was there was this guy named William Miller, and he has a movement called the Millerites, not Millerites, Millerites. All right, it's like what? Did they have corn syrup? Um, and so, so William Miller. Um, was really big on predicting the second coming of Christ. And so he, he gave it his best shot, didn't come true. He's encouraged to rework his chronological dates. He gives it another shot, still doesn't happen. And, and so then kind of his followers continue to try to predict when Jesus would come again. So this guy named Charles Russell was heavily influenced by Miller, right? So, so he starts a Bible study in 1870 where he's focusing on the second coming of Christ and understanding biblical chronology. Right, so this is his focus, influenced by the Millerites. Right, and so he begins to lecture and publish his views, and then in 1879 he produces what's called the Watchtower, and so the Watchtower is the main document that's used in the study groups that he's established. Right, from then on until his death in 1916, he writes several books that he calls Studies in Scripture, and that became that becomes the main theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He passes away, um, and then a guy named Joseph Rutherford kind of picks up and continues this movement forward, right? So, so what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? What's different about them? Well, first, about the Bible. They believe the Bible is without error. So we hear that, and we're like, that sounds good, right? It's without error, but they would say it can't be understood if you don't have the divine plan, So for them, they have the Bible and they say this is without error, but the only way to understand it is if you have the divine plan. What's the divine plan? It's Charles Russell's studies in Scripture. It's also important to know that that the Bible they use is going to be called the New World Translation. All right, so it's different than ours. It's basically the King James Bible where they take the text that has to do with the deity of Christ and they shift them so that they don't push the deity of Christ. Um, there was a committee that came together to, to translate the New World Translation, but no one knows who was on that committee. It's completely anonymous. So I use the English Standard Version. If you go to the front of my Bible, it'll tell you, here's the committee that translated it. You can go online and see every single name of anybody that had a part in translating this text. That's not how the New World Translation works, all right? So they believe that the Bible is without error, but you need Charles Russell's studies and scriptures to fully understand what it says. Now, about God, they would believe that God is one, and they would adamantly deny what we call the Trinity, all right, so for them, they'd say, no, 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 that, that's polytheism. You guys believe in three gods. So they would say God is one, which means that Jesus cannot be God. And they do not believe in the Holy Spirit being a person. They believe that the Holy Spirit is God's active force. Now, this belief that Jesus wasn't fully God is not new to Charles Russell. If you back up into like the 300s, right? Like 300 AD, there was this thing called the Arianism Controversy. All right. And so in this there was a priest, all right, who believed that Jesus wasn't fully God. This caused a big controversy. People got together, all the high Christian scholars got together, studied this thing all the way through, and they put together what's called the Council of Nicaea, which produced the Nicene Creed. And in that, they declared Arianism to be heresy. So basically, Charles, Reynolds, Charles Russell just resurfaced an old heresy that was 1,700 years old. All right, so about Jesus. They do not believe that he was fully God. They believe that he was God's first created being and that his heavenly name is Michael the Archangel. And so... Michael, the archangel, decided to willingly enter Mary's womb and then to be born a human. And so then he's fully human as a kid. And then at his baptism, when when he gets dunked by John the Baptist and you hear God speak and the Holy Spirit descend, they believe at that point he becomes the Messiah. And they also believe that he, he died for our sins, but he didn't die on a cross. They would say he died on a stake. So they're very much against the cross and what it stands for. So they say he died on a stake. He was laid in a tomb where his, his body disintegrated, right? So it just, it kind of gets banished or it destroys. And then he spiritually resurrects, right? So his, his resurrection for the Jehovah Witnesses, it's something that's spiritual, not physical. And so then God recreates his body that he makes these appearances with, right? And so they do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, once again, I said with the Holy Spirit, they believe that he is not a person, but he is God's active force, right? And so... The problem with that is when you read through different texts in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is always talked about in a personal way. Like, it's called a he, not an it. If you read Acts chapter 5, you see that people lied to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to an act of force. Like, I didn't lie to gravity. I'm like... I'm like, I'm telling a story, gravity. Like, like gravity's like, what, did you lie to me? Right, it's, it's something else. And in, in Hebrews 10, you see that you can you can offend or insult. Hebrews 10, 39, you can insult the Holy Spirit. Electricity is an act of force. Like, there's a, a room back there that says employees only that has breakers. And so every morning we come in here and we're like, we turn on those breakers, which gives us light, All right? So imagine we come in here and we don't do light. Electricity's like, how could you, like, that is offensive. Like, how could you not turn me on? No, it's an act of force. Like, that's not a person, but the Holy Spirit has these characteristics of a person. We see that the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit listens, the Holy Spirit knows, the Holy Spirit teaches, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And so so throughout Scripture, when you read the New Testament, there are times when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, right? And so the Old Testament, God speaking, and then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit speaking, but it's quoting what God said. So the New Testament authors understood the Holy Spirit to be fully God. Let me give you a quick example. Um, flip over to Isaiah 6 real quick. This is a, a good example. Isaiah chapter 6. This is one of those youth group talks where you're like, who's going to go conquer college? Here am I, send me. And, um, and, so, and so this is where Isaiah has this vision. There's seraphim with you know, wings, and they take a coal and touch his lips. And then in verse eight all right, of Isaiah six, it says this, and I heard the voice of the Lord. All right, so let's get some interaction here. The voice of who? The Lord. the Lord. Saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Now we're gonna do some syntax, and we haven't taken English in a while. And he said, who's the he? There we go. The Lord. (laughs) Right? So and he said, go and say to this people, so who's the he? The Lord, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's the part of the the Isaiah text that we normally take out. It's like, here I am, send me. He's like, go and talk and no one's going to listen to you. It's like, great. Right? So all that to say in Isaiah six, who's speaking to Isaiah? The Lord, you guys are sharp. All right, now flip over to Acts 28. Acts chapter 28. So you've got the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you've got Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 28. If you hit Romans, you just went a little bit too far. Right, Acts chapter 28. We'll pick up in verse 25. It says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying, Who's speaking? The Holy Spirit. Isaiah, who was speaking? The The Lord. Now, who's speaking? yes. All right. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. And he continues on. And so what you see, is this happens throughout the New Testament where the Old Testament, the the, the Lord is speaking or God. And then the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, but says the Holy Spirit said, like the, under, the, the New Testament authors understood the Holy Spirit to be the same as God, to be one God. All right. Now, flip over to Isaiah. I'll show you another really cool thing. Um, Flip over to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. Like, I was just in Isaiah. Isaiah 48. This is just a beautiful text because some people will say that the Old Testament um, readers and authors had no comprehension of a triune God. And I would completely disagree with that. One is Genesis 1, let us Create man in our image. And we know that angels aren't created in the image of God, only humans are. So who's the us? All right. And so, but look at Isaiah, look at Isaiah 48, Isaiah 48, starting in verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret. All right. So at this point, God is speaking. All right. So we have a God who is speaking. At this point, I have not spoken in secret. The I is God. I have not spoken a secret. But from the time it came to be, I have been there. So we know God has eternally existed. And it says, and now the Lord God has sent me. Wait, what? So we have a God who is speaking, but now we have a God who is sending. And all of a sudden, God's speaking, but now he's saying me. So it's confusing. Like there's a God who is sending, but a God who is speaking. And it says, and his spirit. Like right here in Isaiah 48, 16, we, we have a God who is speaking. We have a God who is sent. We have a God who is spirit. Like Old Testament authors were introduced to this concept of God being one in three persons well before the New Testament was written. Now, some people will hear that and they're like, that's a contradiction. <laughs> like you believe in a contradiction. God can't be one in three. And, and so here's the deal. We do not say that God is, is one God and three gods. We say God is one God in three persons. Okay, he's one God in three persons. I love what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology book. And I know that some people hate when people quote stuff, so I'm just going to quote some other someone said it better than me. It says this, "Scripture does not ask us to believe in a contradiction. A contradiction would be there is one God and there is not one God, or God is three persons and God is one person. But to say that God is three persons and there is one God is not a contradiction." It is something we do not understand, and it is therefore a mystery or a paradox that should not trouble us, for as long as we are finite creatures and not omniscient deity, there will always be things that we do not fully understand. Okay? And so, so like, we're not asking to believe in a contradiction. It's just like, so, man, I don't want to go too long, but we kind of started early, so I'm going to do this. All right, so I just want to talk about me. Like, you're looking at Jeff all right like I am Jeff that's that's my name that's who I am now I have a physical presence like I've got this skin this epidermis that's showing like I've got my skin and then I would say like I have a soul like there is a soul within Jeff, and, and so the soul like that's your that's your intellect. It's the way that you think. It's your feelings, the things that you feel. It's it's your will, the things that you do. So it's your it's your mind, your will, and your emotions. Right at this point, I would say like my dog Barrick. He's like a 150 pound Newfoundland. Like like if there's food on a table, Barrick doesn't smell it. He stares at it. He's like. That food looks good. And at this point, as Barrick stares at food on the table, like he, he, he like thinks about eating it. Like he acts on that and eats my food. And then he feels my hand like afterwards. when I'm like, you can't eat my food. Like those, those are Scott strawberries. Did you just eat a whole thing of Scott strawberries? Like this is precious, right? Like, so like this point, like Barrick would have a soul, but what makes makes me, Jeff, different from Barrack, my dog, is that Barrick doesn't have what I would call a heart. You see, the heart is at the center of our being, and it drives the way that we think, feel, and act. So, so Jeff, body, soul, heart. But I and we are limited by time, space, and matter. So there are certain things beyond our comprehension, but imagine if we could somehow not be limited by those things and pull those things apart where you have a body, a soul, and a mind that all three are necessary in making up one Jeff, yet there are three distinct things. Like it's it's like one, but it's three, but it's just really hard for us to wrap our minds around because. We're finite, All right, But we're not believing in a contradiction. We're believing in a mystery or something that is just hard for our finite minds to wrap themselves around, right? The next thing about Jehovah's Witnesses is salvation. They're just upfront that salvation is through faith and obedience, so for them to be saved, you have to be baptized by immersion. So if you're sprinkled at the Methodist church, they're like, uh-uh. All right, you have to be baptized. You have to associate with the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. That's the people passing out tracts for 15 hours a month. You have to live by righteous conduct, and you have to have absolute loyalty to Jehovah. And so for them, there's no assurance of their salvation. They would say there are two classes of saved people. Right? For them, there are the anointed, and then there are the other sheep. Now, the anointed, they would say that's 144,000 people. So 144,000 people, they get to be in heaven with God the Father and his first creation, Jesus, the Archangel Michael. So they get to go into heaven. All the other sheep who are not anointed live on earth. That's, that's a remade paradise. And then for those who are not Jehovah's Witnesses, we all go to Sheol, which is not hell. It's just a, a common grave of unconsciousness. So they would say, man, if you're not Jehovah's Witness, you enter Sheol, this common grave of unconsciousness. Everyone else, though, will either be in paradise, earth, or in heaven if you're of the 144,000 anointed. So they would also deny this idea of, um, of, of eternal punishment. All right. And so that's kind of the the core beliefs of Jehovah's witnesses. And you might be thinking like, why is this a big deal? Like, does it really even matter? We'll flip over to 2 Corinthians 11 real quick. 2 Corinthians 11. We just spent a long time in 1 Corinthians. We're not about to start 2 Corinthians. All right. But 2 Corinthians 11. I also want to read you something that Paul wrote to, to this church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11. Picking up in verse three, he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily Enough. Paul is writing to them. He's concerned that someone's going to come and preach a different Jesus than the Jesus that he preached. He's concerned that people are going to come and bring a false gospel with a false hope that's different than the message that they gave. Flip over to 1 Peter to the right, head towards Revelation. 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3. And so this is no longer Paul writing, this is Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends. <laughs> Peter reads Paul and goes, he was hard to understand, right? And so in chapter three, verse 15, he says this. This is one of my favorite verses. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, we've been given a hope and we are called to be ready to give a defense for that hope and to do so in a way that's gentle and respectful to other people. And so, so here's, what's, here's what's true of us as humanity. Some people are actively searching for this and other people are, are trying to suppress it or just not aware of it. But we all have felt spiritual needs. Like every single person here, every person that you encounter has felt spiritual needs, this, this need to be accepted, this need to feel significant and secure, this need for relationship, this need to, to, to be known, to be loved, this need to have purpose and identity. We all have these, these felt needs. And so the gospel is the only thing that can truly fulfill the needs that we have and that we long to be filled. The problem is that when we preach something other than the gospel, or we are not helping people connect how the gospel meets their deepest longings, people will begin to search for those those needs to be met in lesser things. They'll search those things to be met in their vocation, In their earthly relationships, whether it's a a significant other or a spouse, they'll search for it in their ability to raise up their kids or to have a status in society. They'll search for it in other religions. And so religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are prospering by, by showing people a fulfillment to their needs, but it's giving them something that's fake or counterfeit that can't truly satisfy. So we have to understand that the gospel meets the deepest longings of our hearts. That's the hope that we have. And it comes only from knowing who Jesus truly is. And that's why we search to know Christ every week. That's why we continue to preach the gospel every week. That's why we center our teaching on it. We center our counsel on it. We center our whole lives on this message because we know this meets us where we are. And it meets the needs of our hearts. So what's the gospel? Just think of it in four ways, okay? We we talked about it in in 1 Corinthians 15 if you want the facts, but just four things, creation, creation, Fall, redemption. I'm wearing it on my fingers. Restoration. Like I never know how to get a three. This feels weird. I'm like this. This is my three, All right, But you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created the world and it was good. We would say that's when shalom existed. Peace. We felt right. Everything was good. We had relationship with God. We related well with others. Like creation was something that we were working to make beautiful. Like things were peaceful and good and and right. That's how God created it. But then in Genesis 3, everything broke and fractured because of sin. We position ourselves to say, I think I know what's best for my life. I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. God, I want to rule instead of you. And that fractures everything. And the world begins to spiral away from God's intended design. Things just continually get worse and worse and worse. But then there is redemption. See, Jesus steps in and lives the life that we couldn't live and dies the death that we deserved. You you see, the bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, or eternal separation from God's love and grace and the eternal presence of his justice and wrath. That's the bad news, but the good news is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, that because Jesus dying the death that we deserved and rising victorious from the grave, there is now no condemnation that we are made righteous and right with God. And we put our faith in him, we begin to experience restoration, where God's restoring our relationship with him, he's restoring our relationship with ourselves, he's restoring our relationship with others, and as the gospel is proclaimed and believed in, other people experience this too, and we believe that one day Jesus will return to complete what he started, and that heaven and earth will collide and be made right, and we will experience shalom again. That's the gospel, and that's the hope that we have. Anything else is counterfeit. Anything else will lead people to eternity separated from God. Maybe you need to believe that this morning. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. But that's our hope, and that's the message we want to proclaim and defend to the end of ages. God, thank you for your word this morning. God, help us to understand the purity of your good news for us in a way that we truly experience restoration now and that we experience it for all eternity. But God, we ask that you help people to not fall into false gospels, to false hopes. God, I ask that anyone who is living in and believing a lie would experience freedom from that bondage and they would experience freedom in you for eternal life today. But God, help us to be defenders of the faith and help us to reclaim the hope that we have in you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.